Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we'll explore an Ohio mystery that has haunted the town of Oxford for decades. It was the middle of summer break, July 1978, when a group of Miami University students and alumni gathered on the grounds below Fisher Hall. They stood witness as a wrecking ball crashed through the dormitory's venerated walls. The building had held so many memories within. Homemade signs proclaimed the students' protest of the demolition. Together, they sang the school's alma mater, whose lyrics took on a painful and somber tone. Old Miami, New Miami, days of old and days to be, weave the story of thy glory, our Miami, here's to thee. Fisher Hall had stood for 121 years before its final demise. The stately structure was first built in 1856 as the Oxford Female College, and later used as an asylum for the mentally ill. In 1926, the land was ceded to Miami University and repurposed for a men's dormitory. But by 1978, university officials claimed that the expense of maintaining the crumbling building just wasn't worth it. It had been deemed unsafe and uninhabitable for nearly 20 years. Its only practical use by that time had been for storage. So in a way, the building's demise had been long overdue. The president at that time, Philip R. Shriver, had placed its demolition on the board's agenda time and again. And time and again, the board voted to postpone raising the building. Why the reluctance? Why the impassioned protest from students who hadn't lived in the hall for two decades? What hold did this dormitory have on the psyches of those attached to Miami University? Today, we'll explore the long and convoluted answer to that question. We'll review the haunting mystery that still lingers, long after the last bricks and shards of glass of Fisher Hall were hauled away from Miami's grounds. Although no living students had occupied Fisher Hall for 20 years, it seemed one student hadn't vacated the premises. Ronald Henry Tamman Jr., a sophomore from Maple Heights, Ohio, was last seen one Sunday night, April 19, 1953. It was an unseasonably cold day with snow flurries and the temperature near freezing. The 19-year-old's disappearance would never be explained. His reputation on campus was known to most. This business major was an honor student and a varsity wrestler. He was a resident advisor assigned to the freshman dormitory on account of his maturity and leadership skills. He was a fraternity member of Delta Tall Delta and a bass player with the Campus Owls, a popular jazz band. He was also a talented singer with a range like no other, from deep bass to a high falsetto. It's no wonder that his sudden and unexplained disappearance was so hard for so many to accept. Maybe that's why the essence of Ron Tamman, be that his spirit, a specter, or some recurring shadow of him remained there, on the second floor, room 225. The tales of odd encounters with something otherworldly had been too numerous to count in the years following Ron's disappearance. No doubt, President Shriver had been influenced by the reports of disembodied footsteps, lights randomly dimming and brightening, and chandeliers moving of their own accord. 
Perhaps that's why, on the hall's demolition, President Shriver decided to salvage the overhead light from Ron's room. It had been left burning that fateful night when Ron's roommate, Chuck Finley, walked in to find Ron's psychology book open on his desk, his radio playing softly in the corner. Ron's wallet, car keys, and class ring laid there on the desk as well, as though he had emptied his pockets. His jacket was there, too. Wherever Ron went on that unseasonably frigid night, he hadn't taken his jacket. Outside the window sat Ron's 1949 Chevy sedan. A receipt for a year's worth of auto insurance was found inside, having been paid only two days prior. Also found was his checkbook. The balance of the account was $200. These funds would never be withdrawn. Lastly, also inside the car was his prized stand-up base. Ron had been given special privileges to have a car on campus so that he could more easily transport the oversized instrument. All of Ron's possessions were seemingly in place, but Ron, the young man himself, was nowhere to be found. Ron, the alleged ghost, however, had never left and was not shy about making his presence known. President Schreiber became somewhat of an expert on the ghostly claims. He often spoke to groups about the many unusual experiences that students and faculty alike had claimed over the years. Starting in October 1953, the fall after Ron's disappearance, voices could be heard emanating from the formal gardens which ran adjacent to the dormitory. Someone was singing late at night in a high falsetto voice. At first, residents of Fisher Hall dismissed the issue as someone playing pranks or perhaps intoxicated, or both. But when it happened again the very next night, a small group of them decided they would go investigate. They would soon come upon an amorphous figure, just barely visible in the darkened gardens. They moved toward it. However, when the figure took notice of them, it took off at a superhuman speed. It sped in the direction of the golf course, where Millet Hall, an athletic arena, now stands. The formal gardens themselves remain today. They flanked the Markham Hotel and Conference Center, the building that now stands in Fisher Hall's stead. About a month after the first ghostly appearance in November 1953, singing again was heard late at night, wafting from the manicured landscape of the formal gardens. This time, the voice ranged from a deep bass to a high falsetto and back again. It was so loud that the residents in Fisher Hall couldn't ignore it. After some discussion among all of them, it was decided that the resident advisors would go as a group into the garden to investigate. Again, they spotted the figure, but this time they could discern long legs below a blackened torso. Once more, the figure ran from them in the direction of the golf course, and at such a speed that no one could keep up. The following night, the singing happened yet again. This time, the entire group of residents, 25 freshmen in all, would scour the gardens searching for the source of the wide-ranging notes. Their accounts of what they observed that night were consistent and reported to university officials. They spotted the now familiar figure standing alone amongst the manicured trees and shrubbery. 
On giving chase, it took off once more at a speed which was impossible to match. Although this was the last documented incident of the singing figure in the gardens, the legend of the Phantom of Fisher Hall had begun. The curiosity surrounding Ron's disappearance only grew over the years. It would later come out that fraternity pledges were often tasked with spending hours alone in room 225, communing with Ron's spirit, and asking his guidance as they were ushered into Greek life. In homage to Ron, they were to leave mementos and symbolic items that represented their respective Greek organizations. Many such items were discovered on the building's demolition. Students had taken to holding seances in Ron's room, especially on Halloween. The first known seance was on Halloween night, 1967. Once those gathered had quieted themselves, they stared, meditating on a candle's dancing flame. Soft but undeniable scratching sounds were heard from the window. On inspection, of course, nothing was there. During another seance in 1975, students invited a self-proclaimed spiritualist to join them. He described having a vision of Ron sitting quietly at his desk, studying. He was only one of a few students in the building that Sunday afternoon, as the others hadn't yet returned from weekend trips home. Ron was deep in study when a large banging came from somewhere downstairs. The spiritualist went on to explain that Ron leapt up from his desk and headed down to the first floor and then to the basement. It was there, he claimed, that Ron opened a door and startled two men who were engaged in something illicit. He wasn't able to discern the exact nature of what they were doing, but he saw the two men hit Ron over the head. He then saw them drag a now unconscious, or perhaps deceased, Ron out of the building and into the darkness. The last scene of his vision showed Ron being buried on a hillside by these same two men. Although this makes for an intriguing story, none of these claims were ever verified with physical evidence. What we do know about the verifiable details of that final day, April 19, 1953, is significant. Ron had just returned from an afternoon gig playing bass for the Campus Owls. On walking into the room, he found a dead fish on his bed. Newspaper reports explain that pranks of this nature among students were quite common. In fact, it was told that Ron had recently poured Rice Krispies all over the sheets of another student's bed. This student had playfully promised revenge. Ron likely viewed the dead fish incident as something he deserved. In any case, at about 8 p.m. that night, he approached the dorm's hall manager, a Mrs. Aura Hunter, to ask for fresh sheets. She gave him what he asked for without much thought. She had no idea that she would be the last person to see him. Ron's roommate, Chuck Finley, would arrive at the dorm at about 9 o'clock to discover Ron's bed freshly made and everything in its place, except Ron himself, of course. Chuck assumed Ron had chosen to spend the night at his fraternity house, so he headed to bed. He wouldn't report Ron missing until the following day. University officials would do some searching of their own, questioning Dick Tammon, Ron's brother and a freshman there on campus, 
They would then notify his parents, who would state that they had not heard from Ron since last seeing him the previous weekend. Two days later, on April 21st, the local police, Butler County Sheriff's Office, and Ohio State Highway Patrol would be contacted, and an investigation was underway. When nearly a week had passed with no results, 400 Miami students, which included his fraternity brothers, organized a search combing a three-mile radius from campus. The Air Force ROTC group had also taken to dragging a nearby pond in the effort. No clues were ever uncovered. In the decades that have passed, many theories have been floated as to just what happened to Ron Tammen. Let's walk through them together. Is it possible that Ron wanted to disappear? Could he have simply decided he wanted a new life and walked away from the old one? Ron's father had saw him perform with the campus owls at John Carroll University the week before his disappearance. He stated that Ron seemed happy and relaxed. By all accounts, Ron was a successful, talented, and well-liked man on campus. He had no known enemies, no clear signs of someone who'd want to do him harm, so any motive for wanting to walk away from a life in the making is hard to imagine. But even if we're to entertain the notion that he did walk away willingly, how can we account for his having left all his possessions? He left his car, his prized stand-up base, his wallet, his access to his money. If he up and decided to walk away from all of this, why take the effort to pay for a year's worth of car insurance two days prior on a vehicle he planned to leave behind? And there are other smaller details, too. His jacket left lying there in his room. Why leave something as elemental as that and on a frigid night? Where would Ron go, and on foot no less? And what would he do once he got there? having no money for food or lodging or the basic necessities. It's just not plausible. Some still claim that Ron might have wanted to walk away or perhaps stage a disappearance. One motive might have included a desire to avoid the draft. By that time, the Korean War had been raging for three years and nearly 1.5 million men had been called into service. Was Ron afraid that he would be drafted? Would staging a mysterious disappearance help him dodge the draft? This theory doesn't hold up well when you consider that he had already received a deferment on the basis of his college enrollment. Also, if Ron was so concerned about being drafted, he would have likely done something drastic on turning 18. As it was, he had already been of draft age for nearly two years when he mysteriously disappeared. While draft dodging is an unlikely explanation, the issue did come up in the course of the investigation of his disappearance. When Ron didn't show up for a physical with the Selective Service, that triggered the FBI's involvement. When he was officially dropped from Miami's roles as a student, his deferment ended. By matter of course, he was officially listed as absent. The ensuing FBI investigation, however, would prove unfruitful. Another theory involved the many claims that perhaps Ron suffered a bout of amnesia. Perhaps he spontaneously forgot who he was and just wandered off. While intriguing, amnesia theories are the stuff of soap opera plotlines. 
Stories about people falling victim to amnesia make for great drama, but our brains just don't work that way. Amnesia is rare and generally requires some great trauma or blow to the head. And even if incidents are known to occur, lost memories are limited in scope to the events in and around the trauma. These memories are eventually regained over a period of weeks or perhaps months at the most. Jennifer Wanger, a Miami University alumnus, began researching the Tamman case in 2010 and spent nine years trying to solve the case. She has reported her belief that Tamman did not die at the time of his disappearance. She thinks he lived for an extended period, perhaps as long as 42 years, which would place his death sometime around 1995. She bases this conclusion on the fact that the FBI discarded Ron's fingerprint records in 2002. Regulations allow them to destroy fingerprint records seven years after a person's death. Wenger believes Ron's psychology professor was involved with the CIA and that Ron may have been recruited into the agency. My thoughts on this theory is that it just doesn't make sense. The CIA would know that an unexplained disappearance would call great attention to Ron. His picture would be plastered everywhere, as it was. Everyone would have been looking for him. That's not a good way to start out as a secret CIA agent. Also, Ron would have been incredibly cold-hearted to join the CIA and leave his parents thinking he disappeared off the face of the earth. Ron's family never gave up looking for him. It's hard to imagine he would have allowed them to live with that pain and grief. Let's consider some other information that came out in 1973, 20 years after Ron had gone missing. Butler County Coroner Dr. Garrett J. Boone came forward with new information. He spoke with the journalist who'd been covering the cold case for over 20 years, a Mr. Joe Sella. He told Mr. Sella that back in 1953, he had reached out to law enforcement officials about a strange request he had received from Ron. On November 19, 1952, exactly five months before Ron's disappearance, the 19-year-old Miami sophomore had driven the 14 miles from Oxford to Hamilton, where Dr. Boone's office was located, to ask that he have his blood typed. When asked why, Ron replied that he, quote, might want to give blood one of these days. The doctor kept the medical record from the visit all those years ago. In all his decades of practicing, Dr. Boone had never received such a request, and from a student, no less. The request was so unusual that the doctor's secretary, a Mrs. Dennett, recalled Ron coming into the office, and she could remember which chair he sat on in the waiting room. As coroner, Dr. Boone's job was to investigate unusual and suspicious deaths. He was not in the business of offering services to the living. Even though he found Ron's request peculiar, he had no reason to deny it. He ordered the test for him at Mercy Hospital, and Ron would go to the hospital that same day to have his blood drawn. The results were sent directly to Dr. Boone's office and were then mailed out to Ron at the campus address where he lived. The doctor stated that he always believed that Ron's disappearance was somehow related to his need to have his blood type identified. 
Dr. Boone also offered that he had reached out to three persons from Miami University about the strange case, but that each time the representatives did not want to discuss it. Dr. Boone believed that some group of people within the university knew more about the case than they were letting on. He felt that he was getting the brush off. Law enforcement officials were strangely uninterested in what Dr. Boone had to offer as well. He was frustrated with the lack of response from both police and the university staff, and he decided to go public with what information he had. Joe Sella, the reporter who'd been covering the case, agreed to publicize the doctor's information. He also stated that he had been given the runaround by the university officials and investigators. He had carried a picture of Ron in his wallet all those years, hoping someday he might run into him on the street. He spent so much of his own time and money searching for the young man to no avail. I looked further into this theory and read that blood typing was commonly used in determining paternity. This was before the advent of DNA technology. While blood typing couldn't confirm paternity of a child, it could be used to rule it out. Could Ron have been worried that he had gotten a girl pregnant? Could he have wanted some way of proving that the child was not his? Might this explain the strange steps of going to a coroner instead of a treating physician to request that his blood be typed? He had no girlfriend, but he was known to play the field, as quoted by his mother in a Dayton Daily News article. Some fellow Fisher Hall residents had also shared with news reporters that Ron was known to have dated a girl from Indiana University. Of course, it's all possible, but it doesn't explain how such a situation, if it existed, would have led to his mysterious disappearance. Also, in the months and years that followed, no such woman ever stepped forward to claim that he had impregnated her. And then there's the theory that Ron suffered a psychotic break. This theory is mostly conjecture, in an attempt to stitch together details in a post hoc manner. It goes something like this. Maybe Ron wanted his blood typed at an unusual place because of paranoid and delusional thinking. Maybe he was reading a psychology book, a course he dropped out of three weeks earlier, to try to diagnose himself. Maybe he suffered schizophrenia, a condition that first surfaces usually in young adulthood. Maybe he thought someone was out to get him and broke off all communication with the world in order to get away from the threat. Maybe he wandered away in a delusional state only to encounter someone that saw his vulnerability and assailed him. Maybe he was hospitalized and refused to give his identity. Maybe he was given electroshock therapy, which then destroyed his memory and his ability to function. Maybe he was lost to the ages as a John Doe, as just one more patient hospitalized in a psych ward. This theory is dramatic and somewhat intriguing, but it's not borne out by the facts. The exhaustive investigation that followed would have certainly looked at any unidentified hospital patients in the area. Also, Ron was a very high-functioning young man, talented and well-liked. Illnesses like schizophrenia just don't show up one night unannounced. They're preceded by long bouts of depression, isolation, and other troubling signs. This theory just doesn't line up with the facts as we know them. 
This brings us to a final theory, which I believe is most plausible. Perhaps Ron suffered the effects of a prank gone wrong. It could have happened within the context of his involvement with Delta Tau Delta, or simply among his fellow students who were known for pranking. The dead fish left on his bed that night was a clear indication that pranking was quite prevalent at that time. Maybe someone, or someones, abducted him from his room out of mischief, perhaps in revenge for some prank Ron had done to them earlier. Whatever action they may have taken that night could have unintentionally led to his death. Through the years, there are many accounts of hazing rituals gone awry, some of them deadly. Could the persons involved had panicked at his death and buried his body to hide the evidence? While interesting, there isn't any evidence to back up this theory either. That is, with the exception of one eyewitness testimony that I haven't yet shared with you. It suggests that Mrs. Hunter, Fisher Hall's manager, was not the last person to see Ron that fateful night. It suggests that Ron may have been left somewhere stranded, alone. Fraternities on campus at that time were known for something called the drop-off. Members would kidnap their target and then drop the abductee off in a wooded area. A mother and daughter from Seven Mile, Ohio, a community 12 miles east of Miami University campus, came forward to Oxford police stating that a man looking exactly like Ron had knocked on their door at about midnight on the night of his disappearance. First, the man asked what town he was in. Then, he asked for directions to the bus stop so that he could get to Middletown. He was dazed and distraught as though he had been in an accident. His face was dirty. His eyes were vacuous, staring blankly. He wore no coat or jacket on that especially cold night. The daughter, a Miss Barbara Spivy, and her mother had answered the door. They gave him directions to the bus station, but only realized after he left that the route to Middletown had been shut down. They felt badly about having sent him off without this information, but felt so unnerved by the experience that neither of them dared to go out after him. The two felt very strongly that Ron's picture in the paper was an exact likeness of the disheveled man who had stood on their doorstep. Given the unusual nature of his appearance at their door, they remembered the entire experience quite clearly. They had been able to recall his clothing, the description of which matched what Ron was known to have been wearing that night. Notably, the community of Seven Mile is about 11 miles east of Oxford, what would be about a three and a half hours walk. Ron's last known sighting at 8 p.m. that night would fit a timeline of his walking in that direction. But why would he have been walking away from campus? And why would his destination have been Middletown, a location yet 13 miles further east? What could have possibly drawn him there? Could Ron had indeed been dropped off by his fellow fraternity brothers with instructions to find his own way to Middletown for some unknown reason? On reaching exhaustion after walking for over three hours, perhaps he approached the first home with a light on, which happened to be the Spivy residence in Seven Mile. Of all the theories which have surfaced on Ron Tammon's unexplained disappearance, 
This one most closely aligns with what we know about the case, but it requires a pledge of unbroken silence among the persons involved. Could a secret of this magnitude and importance been kept for over 60 years? When you consider the consequences of such a truth coming out, including imprisonment for the guilty parties, a disbanding of the fraternity, as well as a stain on the university's reputation, it's not so hard to imagine that those who might know of such a scenario would have indeed kept it under wraps. A 2011 article in the Miami Student Newspaper detailed the efforts of a detective, Frank Smith, of the Butler County Sheriff's Department. He'd been assigned the case, which was the oldest unsolved case the department had on the books. Detective Smith would explain his efforts to locate other residents of Fisher Hall in 1953, who might have more information that had been overlooked. One gentleman he found lived in the room next door to Ron, and stated that Ron had been in his room that very night as the two of them had been studying together for an exam. Ron eventually left and retired to his own room. When this resident later walked down the hall to use the bathroom, he walked by Ron's open door and saw he was not there. But he didn't think anything of it. Ron had not seemed stressed or upset that night, so he assumed he must have just stepped out for a bit. Another Fisher Hall resident, a Mr. Don Bledsoe, had been a member of the ROTC group who searched the campus far and wide for Ron. He told Detective Smith that he was of the opinion that Ron had met with foul play on account of his involvement with Delta Tall Delta fraternity. He believed that the pledge class one year below Ron had something to do with his disappearance. He stated that pranks and hazing rituals were quite common among members of the group and he reported that most everyone knew that the fraternity was known for risky pranks, the details of which were kept secret. Mr. Bledsoe also expressed a belief that the university at large grew eerily silent about the whole affair in the weeks and months that followed the disappearance. He believed that university officials knew more than they were letting on. Detective Smith had completed a thorough review of all aspects of the case including records from Miami University, the local police, sheriff's departments, the county coroner, and the FBI. He believed that the investigation efforts had been dismal and inept. For all his investigative efforts, he believed that Ron had left the room of his own accord. My personal belief, after having studied the case thoroughly, is that some prank or hazing ritual followed something akin to the known drop-off practice. I believe Ron was told he would have to make his own way from Oxford to Middletown, which is a total distance of about 21 miles. When he became exhausted on reaching seven mile after three and a half hours of walking in the cold with no coat, he stopped at the Spivy residence asking for directions to the bus station. What came of him after that is known only to the ages and perhaps Ron's spirit, which was known to haunt Miami campus in the months and years that followed.
This concludes our episode on the ghostly disappearance of Ronald Tamman Jr. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you have some of your own theories as to what exactly happened to this young man, please feel free to share them on Ohio Folklore's Facebook page. You can also read more about the case at ohiofolklore.com. And don't forget, if you'd like to see Ohio Folklore in action, come to the Avon Lake Public Library at 7 p.m. on Thursday, October 24th for a live presentation. And as always, keep wondering.